Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8-11 Welcome to Tell Me the Story with Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us for a weekly study of the Bible as we read verse by verse with the original context and languages at the forefront, illuminating the stories at hand. All Christians today are likely familiar with the concept of being quote-unquote transformed by Scripture, or Christ, or however you want to phrase it. This and the idea of being a born-again Christian, which has been in vogue in evangelical circles for the last 50 years or so, speaks to a certain reality of a scriptural life and transformation. The true scriptural reality of it all is much more complex and demanding than the sort of Christian ease catchphrases that get thrown around willy-nilly. But something we can all agree on is that a person's past sins always come back to haunt them, even after they are quote-unquote transformed. That is exactly what we see in today's story. If we stop ourselves from projecting our personal interests into the story, and we actually hear what is going on, then this fact will be as clear as day. We're actually going to start our reading today with the last verse of the previous chapter because of how it informs today's chapter. Remember, the chapter divisions are not native to the original text. Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. So this section just demonstrates exactly why Rowdy and I uh, left this last verse for this episode of chapter 27, rather than going through it um, a a few episodes ago uh, when we were uh, doing chapter 27. Uh, The reason is, is because it segues perfectly into chapter 28. It's more of a seamless transition. To read it otherwise, it, it makes it seem like the text is saying that Isaac was the one who sent Jacob to Laban on his own accord. But it's important to hear the text in its totality, which includes the content of 27, because what we actually hear is Rebekah lamenting the marriage of Esau to the Hittite women for some undisclosed reason. As a response to Rebekah's unhappiness with the Hittite women, Isaac then sends Jacob to marry a woman from their Aramean family. Right. One of the standout features in this passage is the character's obsession with maintaining that familial dynasty in their lordship over their households. I mean, it's pretty obvious the authors are trying to remind us 
of the character's obsession with this. In fact, in this passage that we just read, the text repeats the fact that Jacob is supposed to go to the house of his mother's father. It says that three times. Typically, in a tribal Bedouin culture that is nomadic and lives off the land, intermarriage between families and tribes can actually strengthen the sense of unity and peace among the tribes and ensure communion among them. This is common amongst various tribal peoples across the globe. However, Abraham's line is from Mesopotamia, the cultured center of city life in this portion of the biblical narrative. He did not want his son Isaac to take a wife from the surrounding Canaanite people. Rather, he wanted Isaac to have a wife from Mesopotamia, from Abraham's own family. In this passage, that very wife from Mesopotamia, Rebekah, is insistent that the heir of Isaac's wealth, Jacob, the receiver of Isaac's blessing, a la the previous chapter, also marry a Mesopotamian city-dwelling woman, and bring her back to the land where they dwell. This is important to point out because we must consider the ongoing theme of the Mesopotamian city-dwelling wife and what blessings or curses they have brought our patriarchal characters thus far. Abraham was undergoing a type of transformation as he spent time under God's instruction, but his Mesopotamian wife was malicious toward Hagar, their slave, and Abraham went along with it, causing the sojourner to be harmed. Isaac gets a wife from Mesopotamia, and what does she do? She beguiles Isaac into giving the inheritance of the firstborn away to the wrong kid, taking advantage of Isaac in his handicapped state. Now Jacob is about to go to Mesopotamia to try and find a wife like these women who constantly display the egocentric, greedy mindset of the city dweller, and we will soon hear how that goes for him. And please don't hear me or scripture and think that it is making an anti-female statement by the repetition of this pattern, this thematic concept. The text is not advocating for a strictly patriarchal culture as the answer to human struggle. The fact that the embodiment of city mindset, the egocentric, greedy mindset of the city dweller being embodied in the wives of the characters is embodied in them because they are the mothers of the coming characters. The mother produces the new man. In the biblical sense and the ancient Semitic sense and even the modern Semitic sense, it is the mother who's giving away her own life to produce the child. And that is symbolized in the bloodletting of birth. We've talked about this in a previous episode. So a mother is sacrificing her own life in giving that life to the offspring. So the fact that it is the wives and the mothers, the women in this narrative, that embody that, 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 embody that city culture is to illustrate the way that it is being preserved by the mother to the progeny. And then the progeny takes after their mother because they're born of them, and they too have to overcome these deeply rooted sins of greed and disdain toward the outsider because they got that city-dwelling mindset from their mother. Functionally, again, functionally, I'm not saying this is, a, this is how motherhood works. I'm not saying that when a woman gives birth, this is the result, is an egocentric child. I'm just saying functionally in the story, I would argue that that's why it's the women, the wives of the patriarchs, that are all Mesopotamian, all city dwellers, all sharing this common personality.
An interesting occurrence also happens in verse 3, where Isaac blesses Jacob and prays that God will make him a company of people. At least that's how the, the ESV renders it. The original Hebrew has kahal, which has the connotation of a convoked group. In Greek, this word is rendered to ekklesia. Ekklesia comes from the verb kalo in Greek, meaning to call out. Thus, the meaning of ekklesia is a group of those who are called out, which corresponds quite nicely with kahal, meaning a convoked group. So it's not that Jacob's descendants will just be a numerous group of people. They will be a group that is chosen by God. And that's the key word. It's a group chosen by God and not by man, meaning it is not men who choose the parameters. And of course, this becomes critical to uh, how Paul presents the gospel in his letters. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, and the sister of Nebaioth. The new wife of Esau is Mahalot, which means sickness, or sicknesses, because it's in the plural. And she is the sister of Nebaioth, which means the beholders, or the lookers, those who see. It's also interesting that Esau's actions are a reflection of his desire to obey his father Isaac. Again, it seems like Isaac himself had no qualms about intermarrying with the other Canaanite tribes, and therefore was content with Esau's marriage to the Hittites. Upon Isaac's direction to Jacob to marry from within the family unit, Esau marries from Ishmael's line. This moral ambiguity is not something that generally sits well with Westerners. We like clearly defined ethical parameters We'd like to know which character is good, which one's bad. But here Esau is doing the right thing in obeying his father while not knowing that it is his mother's continued influence causing all this to happen. Esau has hardly done anything wrong, yet it is Jacob who carries the seed of the Torah for future generations. Not from earning anything, but by usurping it. And so that's the important point. So what's the message? Jacob is not the hero. Jacob doesn't matter. What matters is the text. Jacob could be the most evil person in the world, but despite his evil deeds, the message of the gospel lives on. You can usurp power from others, but you can't usurp God's word, no matter how hard you try. Not by so-called holy wars, not by conquest, not by dogmatics and theology, nor by politics or religion or whatever weapon people have used in an attempt to usurp God's word for their own power. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of that place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. 
your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west, into the east, into the north, into the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz formerly. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Now, I know I harp on this perhaps too much, but please humor me. It is in the spirit of the teaching of Scripture that we remove ourselves from the process of interpretation, if we are our own stumbling block to hearing the text. If I have any preconception or idea or arrogance that puts a wall between me and the story, I have to remove it. If I am not hearing as much of the teaching as possible, then I must work harder at stifling my ego to make room for the teaching that I am missing, whatever it is. If I hear a story in the Old Testament, and it challenges my desire to hear the text as historically accurate because it challenges what I know about history, then I will consciously or subconsciously hear the text differently so that I feel better about its historicity in my own mind. I must forsake my desire for the text to be historically accurate and remove that obstacle so that I hear the story. If I am a Protestant repulsed by Roman Catholic doctrine, or I am myself a Roman Catholic Christian, then I will consciously or subconsciously alter how I hear Christ when he says, Truly, truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. I'm not going to go into this teaching, of course, but we are all likely aware of the divisiveness caused by a mishearing of this teaching. Entire churches have divided and tribalized over their different interpretations of this one teaching as they are influenced by their own theology. That is their stumbling block, generational theology, often confused with tradition. The stumbling block of the individual, however, of you and me, is ego projection. Again, I say it a lot, but we cannot let it slide. It's a modern issue. If we are going to hear the story, we must rid ourselves of this stumbling block. It is a part of us because all of the stories we consume in our modern time, all the stories currently being written, the stories, the movies, the books, the novels, the TV shows of the last hundred years are all written to appeal to this approach, to project our ego onto the story, to be the character and to feel what the character is feeling. But that is not scripture. That is not how scripture is written. We cannot project our ego onto the character in the biblical story because when we do, we let their behavior slide because we like them, because we like ourselves. What did we just hear in this story? Jacob is making Elohim, the universal God, into an idol. He is making the creator of the heavens and the earth, the great functionator, into a local deity. There are no ifs, ands, or buts about it. 
In his vision, God literally says that he is the God over the very ground that Jacob is sleeping on because he claims to have the authority to give Jacob that land. And he is the God of Jacob's father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac, who both lived in a different land, so he is not simply a local deity. And what does Jacob do? He calls the place Bethel, which we already know is foolish, as there is no quote-unquote house of God, because that's what Bethel means, right? There is no house of God in the sense of geographical locality. Look back to the story of the Tower of Babel for that clarification. The text makes it very clear. We covered that story in episode 20 of our podcast. So then Jacob dialogues with himself saying, oh, okay, if this God provides for me, clothes me, protects me, etc., then I'll have him be my God. Sure. And lastly, he sets up the stone he slept on and proclaims that it will be God's house. I mean, come on. Put the pieces together, Jacob. This God is above your childish desires and your human needs. If he has the authority to grant you the land you sleep on, if he is the same God that shepherded your fathers in the wilderness, do you really think you can reduce his dominion into this worthless stone? He is the God who lords over the very ground, the Adama, you lay on. You receive his favor because he says you do, not because you pour oil on his quote-unquote house and swear to give him a tenth of all that you gather? Isn't it that the tenth you shed and the remainder you keep is and was already his? But alas, Jacob is like a child in this story. The same way Abraham did not trust God when he arrived in Canaan, instead going down to Egypt because he was hungry, this is just the beginning of Jacob's story. So we have to wait and see what becomes of him as a character. Here, Jacob is a pagan. We cannot take his lofty patriarchal role and retrograde it back into this story and hear all of his actions as pure and good. Maybe he is good later, but here it is not so, as the Apostle Paul says in his first letter to the Corinthians. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to a god, we are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. Amen. Yeah, I really don't have much to add other than to highlight the importance of your very important observation regarding Jacob's so-called house for God. It's no coincidence that Jacob is conducting the same behavior as the nation bearing his name later on in the story with their erection of Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. To attempt to pin the scriptural deity down, especially in a stone temple complex, is beyond offensive. God cannot be pinned down. He is uncontrollable, like the wind, and gives you words of instruction, not to dialogue with or agree or disagree with. No, no. He gives you words of instruction to eat. You submit to God. That is the bottom line. Temples and cities are futile because they may be able to protect you from enemies, but they can't protect you from God, as Israel learned in the scriptural story. And it's plainly written right there in Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. That's the, that's the key. So thank you all for joining us. 
God bless you all, and we'll see you next week. This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network.